Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to New Books in Irish Studies, a podcast channel in the New Books Network. My name is Aidan Beattie. I'm one of the hosts of this channel. Today we're talking to Sean Cray, who was born in County Monaghan in the Republic of Ireland, but close to the border with Northern Ireland in 1977. He was educated at Dundalk Institute of Technology before moving to the US and then uh, studying at Northeastern Illinois University, where he both developed a very strong interest in Irish-American history and also achieved an honours degree in history, as well as an honours in education. Today, he's a middle school teacher uh, in Illinois, but he's also the author of a new book called The Wolfhounds of Irish Nationalism, which has just come out with Peter Lang. And that's the book we're here to talk about. Sean, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Sure. So uh, like like a lot of historians, I suspect, uh, a lot of Irish historians, I, I should say, I was aware of Clam the Gale, but didn't really know a huge amount about them. They're sort of there in the background if you're like a, a historian of, of Irish Ireland rather than Irish America. So maybe if we could start just getting you to tell us a little bit about where this group came from and what their early years looked like. Sure. I, I'm like yourself, actually. So growing up learning Irish history back home, they were little more than a, a footnote, so to speak. They were... Uh, kind of mentioned in the background, so to speak, uh, when it came to the issue of the Home Rule Movement and uh, the Land League. Clan the Gale was very much always there in the background. Um, in relation to their founding, uh, of course, they grew out of the embers of the dying years of the Fenian Movement, uh, especially in the t- during the time of the raids on Canada, when deep divide was beginning to occur within the Fenians. But even prior to that, if you were to look at their uh, ideological origins, you can go back even further to the uh, first arrival of United Irishmen exiles to the U.S. back in 1798. Um, They were kind of the foundation of Irish-American nationalism. And of course, in the generation after, you had the arrival of the Young Irelander movement exiles as well. And then, of course, the famine refugees around that particular time as well with a heightened sense of nationalism. But um, like I said, the Fenian movement in particular was where the uh, Clan de Gale, uh grew from. And the founding figure is uh, often considered to be one Jerome Collins. Uh, he's a figure that's not generally kind of well talked about or known when you talk about Irish-American nationalism. But during this time period, he was one figure which many within Irish-American nationalism kind of could rally around or uh, was a popular figure at a time when there was uh, deep factionalism within Irish-American nationalism. So when the Fenian movement collapsed, um, the Clan de Gale basically kind of rebuilt, essentially, kind of from scratch. Uh, they built up local chapters in major Irish ethnic communities, particularly in the Northeast. And unlike their Fenian counterparts, uh, I mentioned in the book, Clan de Gale were a much more, I argued, a for the want of a better term, a much more professional, a much more kind of a secretive revolutionary movement. Uh, whereas the Fenians were very kind of um, very public in what their intentions were and were very open about what they were planning to do. Uh, they left themselves open, obviously, to infiltration uh, by British and American intelligence. Clan de Gale learned from that lesson and developed into a much more, I would argue, successful and robust kind of revolutionary movement during this particular time period. So one thing that just kind of stood out to me just because of my own personal interests um is that you mentioned at one point that the Zionists, Indian nationalists, African-American mm-hmm. nationalists were all influenced by Clan Miguel. So maybe mm-hmm. could, could you tell us a little bit more about that and, and maybe yes, where you course. situate them? Yeah, go ahead. No, absolutely. Yes. And I know uh, 
you, you had to work on that in relation to the Zionist uh, movement and the Irish connection as well. So one of the things that really stood out when I researched this was like Irish American nationalists, they really were the original and founding ethnic nationalist movement in the U.S., like I said, I use the term from 1798 onwards, they were establishing revolutionary networks uh, that were connected to Ireland, like generations before the United States was seeing mass immigration come into the US. So we often use the starting point of uh, the famine period and the arrival of the United, uh, sorry, the Young Ireland movement. But really before that, net revolutionary networks were established in the United States. So like I said, be well before the arrival of mass Jewish uh, refugees, uh, the rise of African-American nationalism, uh, in the arrival of Indian immigrants and nationalism there as well. The model that they worked off and that was already well established was that of Irish-American nationalism. And when I say model, I mean this outward display of ethnic identity and solidarity. Uh, obviously, the most uh, visible on a yearly basis was that of St. Patrick's Day parades. Today, we think of those as just cultural, outward, fun moments and events, which they are. But back during this time period, there were very much open displays of uh, political protest, uh, ethnic solidarity, and also their model for political agitation, their ethnic newspapers, their political lobbying. Uh, these were all kind of uh, well interconnected, well organized. And other groups really did learn from this. Uh, in the book, I used examples of even similar wording, similar types uh, of protests that were used by African-American nationalist uh, groups as well at this time. They really did focus and were very aware of what was going on in Ireland, primarily through uh, Irish newspapers and uh, political agitation that was going on at a street uh, level as well. So really, they were, I would argue, the original model that ethnic revolutionary model that many other groups after them uh, not only identified as successful, but really wanted to emulate and follow themselves. It's really interesting to think that like, like how much then this really challenges what we think we know about these kinds of groups that. Yes, that this is... yes, it does. Yes, yes, it does. Because like I said, uh, it, it's, we, we often forget just how early Irish American nationalism established itself in the US. Uh, like it was well before they were, the first major group, non-Anglo-Saxon, non-Ulster-Scots group, to kind of establish themselves there. And they were, Irish revolutionaries, they were not shy about outward displays of, even though it brought on nativist antagonism and sometimes nativist attack, they were not shy about outward display of ethnic identity and loyalty. And one of the big challenges Clan Nagel faced throughout their history, uh, I mentioned numerous times in the book, was balancing this unique ethnic loyalty and ethnic identity with loyalty to the United States. This was a constant theme and issue that came up constantly and was used at every opportunity by uh, nativist elements, actually, as a as a form of attack against uh, Irish American nationalism. And later in the book, I talk about how kind of World War One was a particular challenge for Irish American nationalism. But um, but definitely their model. Uh, and I have to the key to their success was really how American ethnic enclaves were established and set up. They were really tightly knit, highly coordinated, interconnected entities. Uh, you had, of course, at the base of these entities, the Catholic Church and Catholic schools and education. Uh, they espoused uh, Irish identity, uh, to Catholic Church, Irish saints, schools uh, espoused uh, Irish history, Irish culture. And then branching out from these, you had fraternal organizations like the Ancient Order of Hibernians. Um, they essentially acted 
in times of nativist attacks, like in Philadelphia in 1844, they acted essentially as foot soldiers in Irish-American communities uh, to fight off essentially these attacks. Then as a further extension of that, on the economic front, you had labor unions, early labor unions were dominated by Irish figures, and not just your average Irish figure, but revolution figures who had revolutionary connections as well. Later on, you would see that with Mike Quill, for example, in New York, a leading Clanda Gale figure who was a, a major founder of a, the Transport Workers Union of America. Uh, and then also you had urban political machines, which Irish Americans were very influential in forming and also using for their own political ends, especially espousing getting the Irish American nationalist message onto a national platform, particularly mm -hmm. in the form of Washington. And you had connecting all of these organizations, not just the commonality of an, uh, an Irish American identity and culture, but you had Art Clan Nagel use these to espouse that Irish uh, separatist message, that Irish nationalist message. Labor unions would, add, uh, like I said, would uh, give funds and donations. They would be involved in boycotts of British goods, fraternal organizations. There was a huge overlap in membership between, like, like for example, the Inchon of Hibernians and Clan Nagel. Uh, urban political machines. Clan uh, Gale would espouse the election and support the election of figures that would uh, argue for and support the Irish nationalist cause on a national platform. So really you had uh, a very, like I said, multi-layered, interconnected, sophisticated ethnic community, which really propelled, and which is why Clan Gale lasted for as long as it did. It still lasted to today. But really another key to why it was successful and why it was able to use the Irish American community so effectively. Sure. So, so maybe we can jump ahead then quite a bit sure. to, to the period around 1919 to 23. How does the group respond to the War of Independence in Ireland and to the Civil War? Sure. So from 1916 to 1919, they're really very highly effective. Now, 1917, when the United States entered into the war, was, a, was an extremely difficult and challenging year because they were challenged with the idea of being un-American by supporting or by uh, being anti-British and supporting revolution in Ireland against what was the United States' number one ally at the time. Uh, so that was a very challenging year. Uh, however, once the war ended in 1918, uh, front, front organizations, such as the Friends of Irish Freedom, were extremely successful in fundraising and propagating the idea of independence. Now, this changed significantly with de Valera's visit in 1919. So I was kind of fairly critical of de Valera, uh, I, generally speaking, in my book. Uh, he came in 1919 on his tour with a very um, purposeful drive to basically gain the control of Clan de Gale. Uh, de Valera and those who supported did not like the idea of an independent organization outside of his control and the control of the Republican movement in Ireland. And they basically organized or orchestrated essentially when he couldn't get control of Clan de Gale from Devoy in particular, orchestrated the split uh, within Clan de Gale in 1920. Uh, he achieved this primarily through basically gaining uh, and developing a relationship with Joseph McGarrity. And this was done through uh, Patrick McCart, funny enough, from the same town as Joseph McGarrity. The two of them knew each other. Uh, so or to deliberately orchestrating this split, um, De Valera managed to largely uh, gain sway over Irish American nationalism and gain, pretty much gain control of the huge financial resources that he wanted to use and have control over. Uh, so what that ended up essentially doing was breaking Clan de Gale. It never achieved the same status of power and influence after the break of 1920. And that was in large part through de Valera's deliberate effort to basically gain control over the financial uh, strings, essentially, 
of the, uh, the fundraising body in the United States, particularly the Friends of Irish Freedom. And then what happens to them during the Civil War? Do they, do so they the side Civil with War Yeah, so, so you see two distinct factions. You see the Devoy Colohan uh, faction, which are pro-treaty and support the treaty and support Collins. At this stage, Devoy and Colin absolutely despise De Valeris, particularly Devoy. Um, so they're motivated, especially Devoy's motivated more by his drive against De Valera and not wanting De Valera to gain uh, power as anything else. Then on the anti-treaty side, of course, you have the growing McGarity faction. Uh, and McGarity makes major attempts during the Civil War. Luckily enough, it didn't work because it would have prolonged the war, but he had major made major efforts to uh, send weapons and money to uh, the anti-treaty uh, and came close to doing so. However, because the war was so short, uh, his efforts ended up being too late to have any major impact on the conflict itself. So by the end of the Civil War, you basically pretty much see the end of the Devoy Colin. Devoy dies in 1928. Colin kind of disappears from the scene. And that faction of Clan McGill essentially disappears from the scene. And you have what remains then a small, uh, smaller, I should say, rump of Clan McGill under the leadership primarily of McGarity uh, that's left uh, uh, basically pretty much in control of Clan McGill or the remnants of Clan McGill after the treaty. Uh, so it is then left up to McGarry then to kind of find a way forward uh, in the aftermath uh, of that defeat. Mm-hmm. So so does the end of the Civil War then kind of, is this almost like that they're the dog that caught the wheel now? They're a nationalist organization and, and the nation is established. What do they do? Well, you have to remember, well, Joseph McGarry, anyone who's familiar with him, he's from, from Carrickmore, County Tyrone. So in the aftermath of the treaty, as you well know, uh, partition occurs. And McGarry himself is left with uh was left with deeply wounded, deeply bruised with his unfinished revolution, essentially. So he quickly realizes that Clan Nagel needs to turn his efforts away from undermining the free state and ending that conflict against the free state and focusing or refocusing on ending partition in the north. He felt um that pretty much Irishmen fighting against Irishmen only helped uh British occupation in the north. So essentially he refocused Clan Nagel into basically helping to try to retrieve or rebuild the remnants, at that stage, the remnants of uh, Sinn Féin and the IRA back in Ireland. They do this by trying to reestablish contacts with uh, the former IRA leadership, some of which have, are either on, either have left the uh, the struggle completely or have been driven, driven deeply underground uh, as a result of free state repression, and also in the North at this time as well. He does this by fundraising and sending money back to Ireland uh, to basically try to help Sinn Féin in election efforts and also basically increases communication with uh, IRA figures back in Ireland to try to reorganize, reestablish uh, an IRA leadership that was just decimated after the Civil War. Many of them still remained in prison for uh, a, a time after the Civil War. So they tried fundraising and sending money back to support families and pretty much just trying to revitalize uh, the Republican movement. So this was particularly challenging, as you can imagine, because but Kandakil had a unique advantage. Unlike the Republican movement in Ireland, who faced repression both in the North and in the South, uh, there was a safe haven. McGarrity in particular developed a safe haven in the United States uh, from which uh, IRA, um, those fleeing repression in the South, those on the run, for example, or those looking for economic opportunities who couldn't get it in Ireland, uh, pretty much could flee too. And what happened in particularly in New York, and you see the emergence of Mike Quill, particularly during this time period, he was one of the refugees. I use the term refugees. He fled 
County uh, fought in the Civil War, uh, born in County Kerry, which saw some of the most vicious uh, fighting of the Civil War, come to New York and pretty much have found and established and expand a support network uh, that would eventually see the setting up of IRA clubs, veterans organizations. And uh, Quill himself um, would develop a, uh, a, a one of the most successful labor unions in the United States. And this union would set up in itself, have a network which would uh, provide employment and opportunity in particular to, uh, uh, to former IRA members from the Civil War. So what they were able to do was actually not only uh, keep track of these IRA uh, uh, refugees that were coming over essentially from the Republic, but continue to maintain them as a network uh, that would last many decades uh, into the future and provide a, uh, a framework that would uh, later on, I should say, uh, the provisional IRA would benefit. So that's really where I wanted to kind of lead up to then, yeah. is when, when the Troubles in Northern Ireland start in 1969, it would almost seem to be like a good thing for Clan de Gale. Like they can kind of come out of dormancy to a certain degree. It, yes, because the years 23 to basically 69, you could say, we see the border campaign, uh, the area border campaign, team, which was uh, which was a complete disaster and a failure. But even that brief campaign and that unsuccessful campaign, the Clan played a minimal role in that. They were little more than a propaganda machine back in the US. There was some gun smuggling through the early versions of the Harrison uh, network. But overall, they had a little role to play in that uh, during that time period. One of the things that really antagonized the clan leadership, particularly after the failed border campaign, was uh, the reorientation of the IRA towards more left-wing uh, socialist politics. So the clan Nagel at this time were a, a socially conservative uh, membership whose, uh, whose leading figures were still kind of older uh, conservative Catholic leadership. And the orientation of the IRA towards more left-wing militant, some would say communist politics, are really, um, I should say, and they really antagonize or isolated many within Clan de Gale into being reluctant to support this version of the IRA. Um, and they also remember in the United States, Clan de Gale, these were all still Irish Americans. So the Cold War during this time also played a big role. Uh, we're talking about the 50s and 60s. You're talking about McCarthyism. Uh, and any association with fighting against uh, a British Cold War, sorry, an American Cold War ally also would have uh, brought a lot of uh, wrath, so to speak, or anti-communist sentiment. And of course, Mike Quill in particular, he's sometimes called uh, Red Mike or Red Quill, uh, being a kind of a, a prominent left-wing Clan de Gale member, but was also came under the microscope as well a lot, which kind of antagonized more uh, older established Clan de Gale leaders. So when the opportunity came at 69, uh, those younger members of the IRA in Ireland who were thinking to, of splitting away from the more older established left-leaning, the first thing they did essentially was make contact with the with Clan de Gale, voicing that they wanted to basically stick with more traditional IRA uh, politics, traditional Republican politics, and move away from left-wing, uh, the left-wing slide that they were going through at that time. And of course, Clan de Gale were only two uh, they only jumped at the opportunity, essentially. The famous investigative journalist Ed Maloney, in his book on the provisional IRA, he interviewed uh, figures from this time period. And it really, it stood out to me just how critical it was to get the OK from Clan Nagel before they made the formal split. It really just still, it still highlighted the importance of Clan Nagel as a support network in the United States for the newly emerging provisional IRA. I often wonder, had Clan Nagel not given the support 
are not given the aid to the early uh, formation of the, of the provisional IRA, would the split have happened the same way that it would have? Or would they have survived the, the ensuing civil war, essentially, with the official IRA? So that's kind of really interesting, one of those what-ifs. But uh, Clan de Gale, once they give the okay to the split and to their support for the provisional IRA, they uh, went on then, of course, the provisional IRA went on then to uh, mm -hmm. commence their 28-year campaign, uh, uh, which was uh, pretty bloody and pretty violent. But the beginnings of their, their origins, actually, Clan de Gale played a, 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 for me, when I researched it, a surprisingly important role in that, mm -hmm. which kind of stood out a lot to me. So they might have felt this is more amenable within Cold War politics to side with the provisionals, not the officials, but they're, yes. they're still supporting an organization that is, I assume from 69 onwards is illegal or from 1970 onwards is illegal in the US. Certainly it is later. So so are they under a lot of yes. legal scrutiny? So, so, so later on, so what happens is, so when when most people think about Irish American organizations during this uh, during this time period, the one organization that popped in mind is not even necessarily Clannagale; it's NORA, the Northern uh, the Northern Aid Committee, which emerges later on. During my during the course of my research, I realized that what ended up was that that when NORAD, NORAD arrived on the scene, they were very public, very vocal. They were very out there in their support, in their fundraising. And what happened was Clannagale took kind of an opposite view, having a much more much more experienced, having been around much longer, knowing the scene, so to speak. They were very much more in the background. They were very much more kind of uh, subversive or secretive when it came to the fundraising and, more, of course, in the gun running and that as well. So what ended up happening was, from what I researched, was that NORAD ended up taking a lot of the political heat and pressure so to speak, from uh, the likes of the FBI and pressure from the British Embassy in the US. Uh, and Clan Gill operated much more in the background. So they kind of were, I the impression I get was that they ended up being okay with NORAD being out front, taking the negative publicity, taking the pressure, for, like I said, investigative pressure from the FBI, taking all this legal pressure, and they just operated behind the scenes. Because it was during this time period, a little bit before it actually, that the Harrison Network, uh, Harrison himself being a Clan de Gale member, established a gun running network that provided the uh, military uh, lifeblood for the IRA for the throughout the 1970s and 1980s. So they'd done this kind of under the radar, uh, quietly fundraised kind of off the record, so to speak, all the time when NORAD were getting all the publicity and the headlines, but at the same time, taking a lot of the political pressure and heat. So during this time also, there was the Foreign Aid Restriction Act, which had actually been on the books in the United States for a long time, but was never applied to Irish American groups. Uh, but with NORAD, this was, sort of, of course, revived again, or kind of almost rediscovered, and applied particularly to the Northern Aid Committee. Uh, in relation to Clan Nagale, they didn't suffer the same impact as a result of this, largely because much more of their activities were underground, it wasn't public. It wasn't on the records. It was much more secretive as subversive as opposed to NORAD, who, like I said, put themselves out there as the public face of the provisional IRA in uh, in the United States. So I think in some ways the Klan, you can look at the two of them as being adversarial organization competing for the same public audience. But in reality, Klan de Gale kind of benefited in many ways from NORAD being out there because they used them essentially as a cover while they continued their uh, mm -hmm. their own revolutionary or underground activities. 
And then do they support the Good Friday Agreement when that eventually happens? No, the, the splits particularly was much more pronounced in Plan the Gale than it was in the Republican movement back in Ireland. So back in Ireland, the majority, a lot, quite the large majority within the Republican movement supported the Good Friday Agreement. Whereas here in the US, at Clan the Gale, it was much more evenly split. So they, the movement to this day, the split exists. Uh, so pretty much did, once the Good Friday Agreement was announced, uh, shockwaves went through Clan the Gale. Uh, the movement split almost down the middle, uh, deeply antagonistic uh, to this day. Uh, some support uh, groups still today, like uh, the Real IRA, Continuity IRA, um, and then other groups who are pretty much just kind of fallen back into the traditional role of um, supporting Irish unification and being kind of an extended mouthpiece, essentially, of uh, Sinn Féin. So, so they do still exist, which I was, I was they surprised do still, by. They, they do still exist. They're, they're a small rump of an organization compared to what, to what they used to be. So no comparison to the heyday. Uh, a much smaller, I would say, a much more kind of closed off, kind of even more paranoid sort of uh, mentality or group, especially on the anti-agreement side. Uh, so, yes, they still exist, but a, a shadow of their former selves, for sure. And have you had much contact with members or do they know about I you tried, or your book? Yeah, yeah, I tried desperately to reach out to them. I explained them out right, right in the book because I, I, I explained I wanted them to have a voice, you know, but I tried reaching out to both sides, both the... Uh, uh, Good Friday, pro Good Friday, and anti Good Friday agreement, and neither side, unfortunately, uh, got back to me. I still sent them on uh, notification of my book and <laughs> stuff like that, but <laughs> who knows if they read it or not? But um, it was unfortunately I was not able to get their direct uh, verbal input into, it, which mm-hmm. uh, which was unfortunate. So as I, I think all this shows like this is a really fascinating book about a, a sort of well known yet not well known group. Exactly. Like growing up, just like just like you said, that like Clan Gay was maybe mentioned during the time of, like I said, uh, the Parnell era, Devoy, you'll hear. And often when you talk about, you'd often hear oh, Irish-American support, Irish-American. Really what they're talking about is this organization, Clan Gay. We're not just talking about broadly speaking, you know, Irish-American support or, or this or that. This is the organization that was the absolute backbone uh, of Irish-American national. Like, for example, the Irish Republican Brotherhood, took its orders, essentially, for for decades uh, for, from Clan de Gael. Clan de Gael was a huge influencing factor in the 1916 rising. Uh, and during the revolution, during the Irish War of Independence, they were a huge financial uh, body. In the formation of the provisional IRA, they were very influential in that split. Uh, so, yes, they are an organization that it really still bemuses me why somebody more academically qualified than uh, than I was, never took up into actually doing a complete history uh, of the movement because they are Ireland's oldest, most longest, uh, sorry, longest established revolutionary organization. And I would argue has played more of a role in Irish history than the Fenian movement uh, and has been around longer, like I said, than any other organization. And it was worth writing a book about them mm-hmm. to uh, have their story be told because uh, it's it's been too long neglected, in my opinion. Sure. Uh, I think you're definitely right. N- now that you're done, do you think you'll continue with another project or what's next on the horizon? Well, <laughs> well I'm in the middle of a project right now, pretty much an extension of, of what I've uh, already done. So I'm working on a biography of Joseph McGarry. So, uh, like I said, he was the dominant figure uh, from the, the split, pretty much from 1920 up until his death in 1940. Very controversial figure uh, because of his, uh, his connections with Nazi Germany, which I'll address in the book. 
Um, but yeah, he's he's my next project, uh, which I'm in the middle of working on right now. So I've gathered all my research material. I believe everything that I that can mm-hmm. be known on him. So it's now getting the time to sit down and put it all together. You know, wonderful. Hopefully, we'll get yeah. to talk about that again soon. Hopefully, fingers crossed. Fingers well, crossed. Thanks. thanks so much, Sean. Best of luck with everything. Okay, thank you very much for your time.